You're listening to audio from Home Church Roswell, located in Roswell, Georgia. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit homechurchroswell.com. We are going to be in our final week, the final week of the series that we've been in called Matters of the Heart. And over the last three weeks, now on our fourth week, we've been discussing this idea that there are necessary changes to the posture of our heart if we want to pursue healthy and godly relationships. That if we want the relationships around us to be healthy, whether that's a friendship, a marriage, a dating relationship, a relationship with a coworker or a friend, if we want to see those relationships get healthy and pursue them in a godly way, then the first place that we have to look is to our heart. We said early on in the series that the posture of your heart or the condition of your heart will impact and determine the quality of your relationships. And so for the last few weeks, we've been looking at some different heart postures that are necessary for healthy relationships. In the first week, we said this, that if we want to have healthy relationships, it's going to require us to move from a prideful heart to a humble heart. From a prideful heart to a humble heart, we looked at a study from a Christian counseling practice that said the number one root issue between or behind every problem that they see in their counseling practice is pride. That if we really want our relationships to grow and flourish and look more like Jesus, that it's going to require us to take on the posture of humility, the posture that Jesus took on for us. And that simply means that we value others above ourselves. You can go back and listen to that full message on our Spotify. The second week of the series, we jumped in and we said we're going to talk about what it looks like to move from a lustful heart to a pure heart. From a lustful heart to a pure heart. And we spent two weeks digging into this idea that purity really is possible for all of us because purity is not about perfection. Purity is about pursuit. It's about a heart that desperately wants the things of God and the ways of God above our own ways. And so for a couple of weeks, we talked about the three different types of lusts in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we talked about some ways to invite God in to move our heart from a lustful heart to a pure heart and some practical ways for us to battle against lust. So what I want to do today is conclude our series by looking at one more necessary heart change one more necessary heart posture, and it's this, that we move from a heart of comparison to a heart of contentment. That we move from a heart of comparison to a heart of contentment. To jump into this, we're going to be looking at two passages of Scripture today, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, so you can earmark these two. We'll be in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, and then Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 In Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 through 13. We'll start in Exodus chapter 20. While you turn there, let me give you a little context for what's going on. The people of Israel have been enslaved to the people in Egypt for over 400 years. And God decides to free his people, and so he sends Moses in to get the job done. And Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he demands that the people are set free. You know the song. I said a Pharaoh, Pharaoh, uh, uh. Oh, baby. Y'all like that little hip thing right there? <laughs> you gotta, if, you don't, if you're not doing that when you sing the song, you're missing it, right? And so Moses goes in, and he frees the people, and he takes them on this journey to the promised land. They've now crossed the Red Sea. They've had a cloud to guide them by day and fire to guide them by night. God's provided manna from heaven in order to feed his people. And now that the people are free, God meets with Moses, and he gives him these commandments. 
He gives them these laws to show the people how to live godly lives, but not just how to live godly lives. Get this, how to live free lives. They've been enslaved for so long that they don't even know what it looks like or what it means to be free. And the problem with freedom is that if you don't put boundaries around your freedom, you will actually use your freedom in such a way that it will hurt you. And so God gives them some, some rules or some commandments to show them to how, to how to live as godly, free people. You've heard of these. They're called the Ten Commandments. Now, here's the thing. Oftentimes, as Christians, we actually neglect the Ten Commandments. We don't spend a lot of time looking at these. Because as Christians, we understand that God in Jesus has fulfilled the law, meaning that Jesus has perfectly lived out the Ten Commandments. Now, I want to be really clear with what I'm saying here. We as followers of Jesus are not judged by the law, meaning your relationship with God is not determined based on how well you keep these 10 things, which is part of the reason why for many of us we've neglected the 10 commandments. But I really need us to understand these are still really valuable and helpful for us. There's a couple of reasons why. Number one, the 10 commandments show us the heart of God and it shows us his character and his desire for his free people. The character of God is consistent from generation to generation. God does not change. He's incapable of doing it. And so while Jesus has fulfilled the law and we are no longer under the law, an understanding of the law, an understanding of the Ten Commandments helps us to understand this is God's desire for us. This is his want for us. This is who he's called his people to be. This is his character. But not only that, understanding the law and understanding the Ten Commandments actually shows us where we fall short. It makes us aware of our sin, and that awareness of sin actually leads us to a place of desperation for our Savior. I think it'd be a healthy check every now and then to go back and look through the Ten Commandments, because as you read them, there is no way you will check every one. And it will cause a deeper gratitude, a deeper affection, but also a deeper desire, a greater desire for your savior, and it'll cause you to realize how dependent you are on him. So in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, we see the last of the 10 commandments. God walks through with Moses, have no other gods before me. Don't have false images or false gods. We see them break that pretty quickly. Do not use the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Don't steal. Don't commit adultery. Don't commit murder. Do not lie. And then in verse 17, we get to the 10th and final commandment, which is going to give us the context for where we're headed today. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17 says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So closing the Ten Commandments, God says, hey, I, I don't want you to be looking at your neighbor's life and coveting it. I don't want you to be looking at your neighbor's house or your neighbor's spouse or your neighbor's possessions and going, I want that for myself. I don't want you to look at what they have and begin chasing after it. It's actually what it means to covet. The definition that I have for covet is this, is to desperately desire what someone else has. To desperately desire what someone else has. And God is saying, as my people who I have set free, I do not want you to live your life in the slavery of chasing after what the other people around you have and missing what I have given you. 
You see, oftentimes we think that God's created rules in order to limit us, but in actuality, God's created rules for our good. And this last commandment God created because he wanted to protect our heart from a life that causes us to chase after things that may not have necessarily been meant for us. Anyone ever um, been to a restaurant before? Little crowd participation here. Okay, all of us, great. Um, I don't know if you've had this experience at a restaurant. It happens to me quite often. Um, You're sitting down at a restaurant and you carefully look through the menu, right? Like, I'm the worst at this. Like, I want to look at every item. I want to look at every picture. I want to make sure that I'm making the best possible decision for what I'm going to eat at this restaurant. And so I study it thoroughly. I make a decision. I typically ask the waiter or waitress, like, hey, was that a good choice? And they're like, yeah, that's definitely a great choice. Sir, you nailed it. I'm telling you, it's the best thing on the menu. Little, little trick. They say that about everything generally, right? Especially if you ask them, like, hey, what should I get? They're like, huh, turn over to the other page. Go to the $100 item. Best thing on the menu. Always is, right? And so they're like, yeah, 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 you made a great decision. Amazing. And so my food will come out, and I'll be looking at it going, okay, doesn't look too bad. Looks pretty good. And as I'm about to dive in, I see across the restaurant somebody else with a plate that walks up, and the angels are singing over their plate, and the light from heaven is shining down on their plate. And I'm looking at my plate, and I'm looking at their plate, and I get this thing called food envy. Anyone else ever got this before? where you immediately start questioning everything about the decision that you just made for your food. But honestly, sometimes it goes deeper. You just start questioning your whole life. Like, am I even a good decision maker? Do I even have logic? Do I have good decision? Like, what is wrong? Look at that steak. I ordered a salad because I said it was good. Look at this chicken. My chicken now, it looked pretty good. Now it looks dry compared to that salmon that they just ordered. Like, why did I order what I ordered? And I will spend the rest of the meal desperately longing for what is on their plate and looking at mine going, why in the world did I order this? Now, in the case of my wife, when she has that experience, she just leans over to my plate and eats what's on it. (laughs) But honestly, sometimes that's worse, isn't it? Because it's one thing to see what someone else has and go, ooh, I want that. It's another thing when you taste what the other person has and you realize that what they have actually looks, feels, and tastes better than what you do. It's interesting that I could be having a perfectly perfectly good meal, but in a moment, I could see what someone else has and want that, and it causes me to to devalue the thing that is actually right in front of me. And the heart behind the commandment, this 10 commandment that God is giving us is to actually protect us from a life that feels like that all the time. From a life where you have something good and great in front of you, but you're looking at what's across the room, you're looking at what's across the table, you're looking at what's across your neighborhood, you're looking at what's across your cubicle, and you're going, if I just had, then I'd be happy. And we find ourselves coveting our neighbor, and it steals your joy. Leaves you dissatisfied, leaves you discontent, leaves you discouraged. And you know where all that begins? It begins with the word that we're talking about today. It begins with comparison. Because coveting always begins with comparison. 
It doesn't start with you just going, I want what they want. It starts with you looking at what you have compared to what they have, and you start measuring what you have against what they have. And when you realize that what they have looks bigger or better or nicer or more significant, then that desire begins to build in you, and you desperately want the thing that they have. It always starts with comparison. The problem for us is that we walk around life with one of these, right? And you moved to Roswell, and you bought a house, and you were like, oh, man, like... We did pretty good, babe. Look at us. High five. And then you go over to their house, and it looks like Chip and Joanna threw up all over their living room. <laughs> and you start looking at your house, and you're like, yeah, but their house. Babe, let's go to Target right now. I would say restoration hardware, but we can't afford that. So Target, and let's get as close as we, right? And the thing that used to be good, now that you're measuring it against what they have, now doesn't feel as good. It doesn't feel as valuable and it doesn't feel as significant. We do this with houses, we do this with cars. For some of you, you do it with your career and you're like, man, I just got promoted and I'm doing a great job this year. And then your coworker gets the promotion. And you start measuring yourself up against them. Moms in the room, you do this with other moms. You're doing a phenomenal job raising your kids in your house, in your circumstance. But you start looking around and going, her kids, man, they're always so happy, and she always has the best activities planned. And look at her, like, her makeup and hair, it's always perfect. Like, does she just wake up that way? Oh, my gosh. And you start comparing and measuring yourself against the people around you. For some of you, you do this with your kids. And you're around your kids, and you're like, it's my kid. And then you get around someone else's kid, and you're like, oh my gosh, can I trade? Trade me right now. Give me yours, you take mine, and welcome to purgatory, right? And we find ourselves measuring everything in our lives and comparing our lives against the people around us. We walk through life with one of these, and social media has only made this worse. Because everywhere you turn, you have an opportunity to compare yourself to someone else. And you know this. I'm going to say it, and you're going to be like, yeah, I know. I've heard it a thousand times. But you're measuring your reality against their highlight reel. You're measuring your 24-hour day against one moment where they got one great picture and it looked like everything was amazing and you find yourself going, I'm not measuring up. My life is not measuring up. My things are not good enough. My career's not good enough. My kids aren't good enough. My attractiveness isn't high enough. I feel like I'm failing because I'm looking at everyone else and going, they have it made, they have it figured out and my life feels like it's nothing. Their highlight reel looks so good, and your life feels like it doesn't measure up. The thing that's interesting about that is we like to measure what's up here. Oh, look, they went to Disney. Oh, look, they, they just bought a new house, and they got a new car. And, but we never actually look at what's under here. See, on the surface, they went to Disney, but what you don't know is that they spent 17 hours in line and they rode two rides. 
you're looking at, oh my gosh, their house looks amazing. But what you don't know is that they've been trying to keep up with the Joneses and they're actually so far down into debt right now that it's destroying their family, but the house just looks really good. You're looking at the new car that they just bought and you're like, they just got the new Tesla and my car has 283,000 miles on it and I'm not even sure that it's gonna make it, but you don't realize that they feel so insecure that the reason that they bought this car is because they think that it's actually going to give them worth and significance and deep down underneath, they feel like a nobody. And you're so busy judging what's on the surface that you have no idea what's happening behind the surface. Now, I want to be clear. Uh, I'm not saying that everyone who has nicer things than you or is in a better space than you is miserable. That's not what I'm saying at all. Some people are like, no, actually, I got a Tesla, and I'm fine. Like, I'm doing okay, you know? <laughs> so I'm not saying everyone's miserable. What I am saying is you don't know the whole story. And you judge the 10% that you can see without knowing the 90% that's behind the surface. You walk through life feeling like you don't measure up. And here's the problem with when we feel like we don't measure up. When you feel like you don't measure up, you never have enough. When you feel like you don't measure up, you have this insatiable desire for more and you will start chasing the things that your neighbor has. This is literally how coveting happens is you're looking at your thing compared to their thing and your thing isn't measuring up. And so now you're going, I need to get more so that I can measure up with them. And you're looking at their life going, I'm going to chase after all the things that they have so that now I can have the same status or the same significance or the same worth or look as good as them. And y'all, it's in that space that you don't appreciate the good things you were given because you're chasing the good thing that they have. It's in that space where you find yourself buying things that you can't afford and putting yourself into debt. You know, isn't it funny that we will buy things that we can't afford in order to look good for people who don't care? Mentor said to me one time, he goes, Gerald, when you realize how little people think about you, you'll stop caring how much they think, or you'll stop caring what they think. That everyone's not living their life thinking about you. No one's worried about your stuff and your house. and your, They're worried about them but you live your life trying to impress someone who's not even watching. It's in this space where we feel like we're not a good enough leader, a good enough mom, a good enough husband, a good enough wife, or a good enough person, or for some of us, you sit in a Bible study and you do the comparison thing and you go, I'm not even a good enough Christian. I don't even know if God would be proud of who I am. Not considering where you were and where you are now but just looking at where they are and feeling like you're not enough. Y'all, it's in this space that you miss out on the plans and the purpose and the promises that God has for you and for me. And for some of you, here's the irony, you are hating a great life. You're hating a great life. You realize living in Roswell, Georgia, no matter what your financial circumstance in the room, you are, you're in the 1%, 2% of the world right now and you're walking through life feeling unsatisfied and discontent, feeling like you don't have enough compared to the people in your neighborhood and you're not even realizing that God has blessed you with an abundance and a beautiful and great life and you cannot appreciate it because you're coveting what your neighbor has. It's a problem and it's a problem that's destroying us. And you know that. The question is, what do you do about it? 
But like, what do we do with this comparison thing, right? Like, do we just walk through life with our eyes closed? Like, okay, I'm, not, I'm just not gonna look, I'm good, I'm not gonna look. Do you just give up and, and give into it and go, you know what, yeah, we'll just try to keep up with the Joneses and, and hope we eventually make it. Do we delete all of our social media and go, okay, I just have to like recluse and get away from the world? Like, what do we do to move <laughs> from a heart of comparison to a heart of contentment. We covered that last week in the lust, lust section, okay? Some of y'all need to get off Instagram, all right? We're gonna move on. <laughs> How do we make this heart change? Well, the Apostle Paul actually gives us the secret to it in Philippians chapter four. Turn with me there, we're gonna look at Philippians four, verses 10 through 13, it says this. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. So Paul is writing this letter from jail. He's writing to the church in Philippi. They've had an opportunity to send him some gifts, to send him some encouragement to help him in this situation. He says, I'm not saying that because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstance. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret to being content in, every, in, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. And then verse 13, one of the most misquoted passages in the entire Bible. I can do all things through him who gives me strength. I'm not going to judge you, but maybe you uh, wrote Philippians 4.13 on your eye black, you know, playing football. You wrote it on your sneakers playing basketball. Listen, I'm a Florida fan. I love Tim Tebow. Like, love the guy. Amazing. Got this one wrong, right? Philippians 4.13 does not mean that you're going to get a six-pack in 60 days. It's not going to happen, okay? Dad bod's not going to go to a six-pack before summer. You just believe in Jesus. It's not how it works, you know? Philippians 4.13 does not mean I can bench press a million pounds if I want to. Philippians 4.13 doesn't mean I can just go out and start a business, and because I believe in Jesus, it's going to be successful. That's not what Paul is saying here. The context of what Paul is writing is so important. Before he gets to Philippians 4.13, there's 4.11 and 4.12. I mean, there's a lot before that, but 4.11 and 4.12 are the immediate context. He's going, hey, listen, I'm good in each and every situation. No matter what comes my way, no matter what the circumstances are, no matter how good things are or how bad things are, I know what it's like to be in want. I know what it's like to have plenty. I know what it's like to be on the high. I know what it's like to be on the low. I know what it's like to be a, of high social status as a Pharisee. I know what it's like to be stoned in a city and people think I'm dead. I know what it's like to be in each and every scenario. And here's the key. Here's the secret. Here's the way that you make it through. Here's how you find contentment no matter where you are. He goes, here's how you do it. You don't look to the left, and you don't look to the right, and you don't look at what they have versus what you have. You don't look at the outcomes or the challenges. He goes, the way that you walk through life with contentment, you just look to Jesus. He goes, look at him. You want to know how you find contentment in this life? You stop looking at the world around you and you look to the one who has come to satisfy your soul. You look to the one who said that he is the bread of life. You look to the one who is your all in all. You look to the one who is your everything. If you want to find contentment and satisfaction and joy and peace and patience and courage in this life, you look no further than the person of Jesus. Look to Jesus to be your strength. 
Look to him to be your rock. Look to him to keep you humble. Look to him to give you hope. Look to Jesus. And the more that you look at him, the more you actually become content in this life. You see, there's actually a direct correlation between your trust in Jesus and your contentment in this life. And if you find yourself discontent, it may be a time to reevaluate your trust in Jesus. Because the more satisfied you are, satisfied you are in him, the more that you learn to trust his promises, the more grateful you are for what he's done for you. Christian in the room, come on. If Jesus never did another thing other than a cross, he's already done enough for you. He has saved your soul. He has paid the penalty for your sin. He has set you free. Who cares about the stuff that you have? Who cares what their life looks like compared to your life? Jesus has done the work for you. And the more that you look at the finished work of the cross, the more you will care less about what's happening around you because you realize what God is doing in you. And Paul's going, I don't care if I'm in jail, I'll still have joy. I don't care if I'm on the mountaintop, I'll still be desperate because Jesus is all in all for me. He is everything. And in him, I have contentment. In him, I have enough. And so if we're going to move from a heart of comparison to a heart of contentment, it it takes us looking to the person of Jesus, and I think it takes us looking to him for three things. The first is this. One is that you look to Jesus for his plan for you. Romans chapter 12 says this. It says, do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Get this, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul says in Romans, he goes, hey, don't conform to the patterns of this world. Meaning, don't look around to what the rest of the world is doing and chase after the things that they're chasing after and live the way that they're living and want the things that they want. He goes, no, 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 you be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Meaning, you keep looking to Jesus and you understand him more and you allow the Holy Spirit to change you and mold you and shape you to look more like him. And he goes, the more and more that you do that, the less you stop looking at the world around you and the more that you look at Jesus and allow him to change you from the inside out. He goes, get this, you are then going to discover God's will for you, his plan for your life. And he says that plan are three things. One, it's good. We're going to do a series later this year called God is Good, and I cannot wait to jump into it because God's plan for you is always good. His pleasing will, that as you're walking in the will of the Father, get this, you're going to be satisfied. Not only is it going to be good, It'll feel good. Now, does it mean it's going to be easy? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. We talked about that earlier. But it does mean that that plan is going to be satisfactory for you. You're going to feel a sense of purpose and meaning as you walk with the Lord. And he says, and get this, that will, that plan is perfect for you. What God has for you is exactly what he's designed for you. And when you walk in his will, when you are walking in step with him, when you are following his will and his way, you will find out really quickly that it is a good, pleasing, and perfect place for you to be. God's plan is good, pleasing, and perfect for you. But get this. Theirs isn't. The plan that God has for you is for you. And the plan that God has for them is for them. 
And some of us are finding ourselves discontent because we're chasing a plan that was never made for you. Not all of us are meant to live in a certain type of house or have a certain type of resources or live in a certain type of way. For some of us, God's called you to a humble life so that you can humbly serve people that the rich and famous can't serve. And for others of you, God has called you to a certain level of wealth so that you can use that wealth for kingdom purposes. He has made a plan and a purpose uniquely designed for you. And when you step out of your plan to chase someone else's plan, you are always going to feel like you're in shoes that don't fit. You know why? Because they don't. They weren't made for you. It's why my daughters always fall when they walk around in my shoes. Because these shoes were not made for them to walk in. And so you got to walk in the will and the plan and the purpose that God has for you. Because you may not be built for what they're carrying. And in that, you learn to trust God's timing. Because sometimes it's God going, hey, that's not for you. Other times it's God going, hey, that's not for you now. And you want what they want immediately, and it's not meant for you in this season. Y'all, I wrestle with this all the time. I remember I, I had mentors who would say to me, like, Gerald, you need to be the dumbest person in the room. And I took that to heart, so I would always surround myself with people who are older than me. Like, most of my closest friends are 10 years older than me. And so I find myself sitting in these circles with them, and they're talking about their life, and they're talking about the things they're achieving, and they're talking about the places that they're going, and they're talking about their vacations at their own, and I'm looking at the, the houses that they've purchased, and I'm looking at their life 10 years in front of me, and I leave the conversation going, that's where I'm supposed to be now. But that's not true at all. Because the reality is, it may not be where I'm supposed to be ever, but it definitely isn't where I'm supposed to be right now. Because if it was, get this, I would be there. God wants to take me on a journey to get me to a place where I can handle the things that he has for me in a godly and responsible way. Our generation, if you're under the age of like 40 in the room, this is a huge problem for us. We graduate from college and we're like, you know what we need? I need a six-figure job. I need unlimited vacation. I need to be able to work from home whenever I want. And I deserve it because I graduated from college. I have a degree, sir. And he's like, no. No, you got to put in some time and you got to put in some work. For some of us, we graduate and we start looking at where our parents are and assume that at graduation we're supposed to get there. And what you're missing is the journey that your parents went on to get where they are. So one of my favorite things to do is to sit with couples who are older than me and ask them the story of how they got to the places that they are. And usually there's somewhere in there where they're like, oh my gosh, like we were living in this terrible apartment in New York and it was like 400 square feet. Like literally I could roll out of bed and be in the bathroom and it was, get this, every time they talk about it, they go, it was amazing. Because it gives you a deeper appreciation for where you are now when you've had to go through something to get there. So you trust God's plan for you. You look to him and you go, God, where do you want me now? What do you want me to do now? And I'll be content right there. Second thing we do is this, is we look to Jesus for his provision. Luke chapter 12, verse 25 through 34 says this. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. 
It is not, is not life more than food, and is the body not more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about your clothes? Consider how the lilies in the field grow. They do not labor or spin. And yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his glory was adorned like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into a furnace, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not worry, saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the Gentiles strive after these things, and your heavenly Father knows what you need. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Today has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says, hey, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of this other stuff that you're worried about, God will take care of. Hey, would you just look to me? Would you just look to Jesus? Would you just build your life on me? Would you just grow in righteousness and holiness? Would you just try to live your life in a way that honors me and let me take care of the providing? Because here's the deal. I'm better at it than you are. It's literally my nature. I am a provider. I care for you. So I will give you the things that you need. You don't have to run around chasing after stuff. Just chase after me and let me take care of the stuff. And when you live like that, you find contentment. Now, here's the deal. In that, you're not always going to get what you want, but you will get what you need. Now, some people hear that and they're like, okay, Gerald, like, that sounds good. God cares for us and he's a provider and he's going to give us all the things that we need. But like, what about the kid who's in a third world country somewhere and they don't have clean water? Like, it seems like water is like a pretty basic need. Like, okay, why isn't God taking care of that need? Can I just make a wild suggestion to you? Maybe if you're aware of the problem, then you're part of the solution. Maybe God's going, hey, you know the way that I provide and care for that basic need? It's through you. And if we could orient our lives and our, our finances and our time around the things that matter to God, then maybe what we'll actually find is we get to be a part of the provision that God has for the world. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. This ought to mow your, like blow your mind. Do you realize that as a Christian, if you walk by the Spirit, like if you actually listen to the Spirit's guiding in your life, that you get to be an answer to somebody else's prayer? That someone could literally be praying for lunch right now. And you get to walk into a restaurant and see that person sitting there and go, I'm going to pay for their lunch. The Holy Spirit prompted me. And you had no idea that the thing that you just provided was actually the thing that they're praying for. Like you get to be a part of the plan and the purposes and the provision of God. And y'all, I'm just telling you, I know this firsthand. I've been there on the receiving side of it. I've been in spots where I'm like, I don't know where the next meal is going to come from, and someone showed up at my house with a meal. I've been in spots where I'm like, I'm not sure how the bill is going to get paid, and a check just shows up for something that I forgot that I did a while ago, or I get booked to do some sort of thing. Y'all, I'm telling you, the journey to getting here was not an easy journey. There were days where we were looking at each other, Kylie and I, like, I don't know if we're going to make this. 
Kylie lost her full-time job. I lost 80% of my income, 180% gone in one year. And after that, God goes, plant a church. And we're going, how? There's no way. We're not in the spot to do, and I'm just telling you, God showed up time and time and time and time and time again. If you will just look to him and trust his plan and trust his provision and walk with him, he will take care of the rest. And so you look to him for his plan. You look to Jesus for his provision. And then lastly, you look to him for your identity. You see, for some of you in the room, coveting doesn't look like wanting what other people have. You're actually quite content with what you have. For some of us in the room, it's not that we want what they have. It's that we want who they are. And when you look in the mirror, you don't like the person that you see. And you look at everyone else and you think they're prettier, smarter, better than you are. And you wish you were in a different body at times. But y'all, if we look to Jesus, instead of looking to the world and going, hey, who am I? Am I smart enough? Am I pretty enough? Am I valuable enough? Am I good enough? What if we just started asking those questions to Jesus? What if we said, Jesus, who do you say that I am? What do you say is true about me? What do you see when you look at me? I, I wrote a few things down. Some of you have heard me walk through this list again, but some of you just need to hear this this morning. Mom's in the room. For some of you, this might be the very reason that you're in the room, is just to hear this list. This is the identity that you have in Christ Jesus. And Ben, y'all can get ready to come up so I don't go too far over. Number one, you are born again. You are a saint. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are a disciple you are protected by the power of his name. You have been set free by the truth. You are eternally secure in Christ. He has kept you from the evil one. You are one with God the Father and with Jesus the Son. You are God's gift to Christ. You have peace with God. You have been justified by faith. You have access to God and to his grace. You can rejoice even when you are in trouble. The love of God has been poured into your heart. You are reigning in the life of Christ. You have been reconciled to God. You were raised to walk in the newness of life. You have been united with Christ through his death and resurrection. Your old self has been crucified, and you are new in Jesus. You are no longer under the law, but you are under grace. You have eternal life in Jesus. You have been set free from sin. You are free from condemnation. You are a servant of God, meaning that he is using you. You are led by the Spirit, meaning that you are never alone. You are a joint heir with Christ. You can be confident, get this, that God is working all things together for your good. You are being conformed into the image of God. You have been given all things. You are inseparable from his love. You are more than a conqueror in Jesus. You are his temple. You have been washed. You have been sanctified, and you've been justified by the blood of Jesus. You have been bought with a price. You are triumphant in Jesus. You are an ambassador. You are strong when you are weak. You are redeemed. You are full of the spirit, which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. You are blessed with every spiritual blessing. You are a new creation. You are chosen by God. Get this, chosen by God, meaning of all the people in the world, he went, I want you. I choose you. I love you. You are forgiven. You are called according to his purpose. You are made alive, alive with Christ. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have been saved by grace. You are his handiwork, which God created for you to do good works in advance. You have access to Jesus. You can walk boldly into the presence of God. You are 
renewed in your mind and in your spirit. Your old self is dead. You were once in the darkness. You are now in the light. He started a good work in you, and he is going to finish it. You are a citizen of heaven. You can rejoice in the Lord always. You are a child of God. That's your identity. That's who you are. And so maybe today is the day that you just decide, I'm not looking at her and I'm not looking at him and I'm not looking at their Instagram to place value on my life. I'm going to look to Jesus. And I'm gonna go, you tell me who I am. Because get this, you're the only one who has the right to because you paid for me. And I belong to you. And if I belong to you, then you get to speak into my identity. Now, as I was writing this sermon, I. I remembered the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 3, where he prayed this prayer for the church. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I just want to read a part of it to you. He said, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all of the Lord's holy people to get this, to grasp how wide and long and high the deep of the, of, of the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses all knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or imagine, according to his power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, in Christ Jesus, throughout generation and generation. I think what the Apostle Paul would say to you is if you're going to walk around with one of these, why don't you use it appropriately? Stop measuring yourself against other people. He goes, if you want to measure something, why don't you measure the love of God for you? If you want to measure something, why don't you measure his grace for you? If you want to measure something, why don't you measure his presence and his faithfulness and his goodness and his kindness? Why don't you measure the love of God for you and your life? Measure the number of times he showed up. And here's the deal. When you start measuring that, you're always going to run out of tape. There's never going to be enough. So why don't we measure that? And as we do, here's what you'll find. That Christ is enough for you. And you can be content in him. So Heavenly Father, would you help us to move from a place of comparison to a heart of contentment? Would you help us to trust and believe that you really are enough for us? And would you help us to live from that place? We look to you and we trust your plan. We look to you to be our provision. And we look to you to give us our identity. We love you, Jesus. And we thank you. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.